now coming to you live from the Gershwin Room, high above the Coot Street Motel 6. It's Jonathan Stroud and Gary K. Wolf on... Oh, wow, that's not very good. That's actually... Jonathan Stroud and Gary K. Wolf, a very special guest, Ian Monda James Bradley on... The Coot Street Podcast! It's December. This happens to Jonathan every December. His voice turns into something that sounds like it should be an animated cartoon from the 40s. <laughs> Well, first of all, uh, welcome, James. Welcome back to the podcast. Thank you very much, John. It's good to be here. And welcome back, Ian. Welcome to the podcast. Uh, it's a pleasure. It's a, always an honor and a pleasure. And this is the first time we've all been together since we did one of those roundtable discussions, which were a lot of fun. Yeah, yeah. We were, yes. yes, we got the, last got together back in September to talk about Levi Tittar's book, Central Station. But now, as a bunch of, you know, entitled middle-class white guys, we thought we'd get together and talk about our favorite books of the year. Yes, we, we did think that, especially the entitled bit. <laughs> <laughs> well, look, I thought I, it was worth laying it out there sort of, sort of in front of everything, but I thought since we were the roundtable group, it would be nice to at least cap off the roundtable with a year in a year in review, and talk about the kind of books. Not necessarily that we would make great hyperbolic statements as being you know, the best book of the year, the year, the year, the year, the year. But more, the books we enjoyed the most, the ones that um, we really would recommend to friends to pick up and see what they think about. Um, but I thought what we might start with is, I mean, we've all been reading, but reading differently. What are your feelings about the year generally, your reading year generally? I thought, well, we'll go around in alphabetical order just to make it sort of simple and fair and very unfair on James. <laughs> okay, so James, how was your reading year? Uh, my reading year has been a bit chaotic, I have to confess. Uh, I've had quite a lot going on in my uh, personal life, <laughs> a lot of work. Um, so I've not read as much as I normally would or as effectively, I suspect. Um, I'm, look, to be honest, I... If we're talking about the kind of speculative side of my reading, I, I don't know that I've had a year where I felt, I mean, there's been a number of things I've really liked, but it hasn't been one of those years where you felt like you were discovering things, where you felt like, I was in fact reading Adam Roberts's um, Guardian Year year in Review in The Guardian the other day, and he was saying what a wonderful year it had been. I was thinking, what a, how I felt about it. But that may well be me rather than the books, if that makes sense. So so there's been some things I've really loved, but I don't know that I've had that sense of kind of discovery and excitement that you sometimes have some years. Do you feel like you're reading more in the genre or out of the genre than you usually do? Uh, probably more out, to be perfectly honest. And do you feel like that might have uh, affected your, your feeling about the year, or do you think it's just basically a, you know, your personal experience of reading through the year that was relevant? I think my personal reading experience of reading has been a bit messy. Um, but, no, look, I also – look, with me, um, because I write, my, my reading is always incredibly tangled up in what I'm writing, and – it's always very difficult to separate those two things for me. And I think the kinds of things that I've been writing, I've not been finding things within the genre that chime with them, even though what I'm writing is a genre novel. Does that make sense? It does. It does. Well, let me throw, throw to <laughs> Which you. Which we'll talk about in a minute. <laughs> we will. Let me throw to you now, Ian. So how has your you know, reading mm -hmm. year been? Are you still manically pursuing every sort of award shortlist in the world? No, 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 no. Well, I am, but that's, that's to come to an end this year. Um, 
So next year, I'm going to still look at the literary, some of the literary lists, but I'm basically going to avoid <laughs> all the genre awards. And I'm not going to avoid them. I'm going to use them more as a reading guide than to manically read every book on those lists. Uh, I thought I would burn out, and I did burn out. I just, it just, yeah, there was, especially earlier in the year, there was just a bit too much rubbish. And so, uh, yeah. So, so I won't be doing that, but I will still be keeping my eye on, uh, the National Book Award, the Man Booker, uh, the long lists of both of those, uh, the Goldsmith Prize, which I think is actually the best award going around. And, um, and, and I, and I will keep very close attention of the genre awards that I particularly like, uh, if I don't, even if I don't read the full list. So, uh, the Kitchies and the Shirley Jackson would be right up there as two awards that I, I think are probably the strongest in the, in the genre. But, uh, yeah, but, but overall, overall it's been a, it's been a really good year um, for me. Uh, Literary-wise, better than genre. There's been some amazing literary novels published in 2016. Um, yeah. But, but that's not what this is about, so I can't talk about any of them. So. <laughs> well, you can, you can touch on... No, this is about your reading experience, so, so you're okay. I guess to sort of chip in alphabetically... <laughs> yes, Gary? Mm. Okay, no, I was just going to say one of the things that interests me about... But what Ian and James both said is doing a lot of reading outside of the genre. Uh, and I, I have friends who do this, but I don't do a lot of reading outside of the genre, not as much as I'd like. But when you start putting together a list of five or ten best books of the year and do that within the genre, that's fairly easy. That's what everybody in the field does. If you put together a five or ten best books of the year without regard to whether anything includes science fiction or fantasy, would any of the science fiction or fantasy titles make that list? For me, uh, uh, yes, possibly. Okay. Yes. But I don't want to spoil what I'm going to say, so yes. But the thing is, there are a lot of books here that, that I would say are tied. Um, you know, so, but if I had to, if you put a gun to my head, um, at least one or two, yes. Okay, that's... Mm, I, 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 I would say the same thing. I mean, I'd also say what Ian said, which is I've read a number of things this year I thought were terrific. Some were within the genre, but a number of them were outside of it. And I, I feel like that those moments of excitement for me this year have mostly taken place outside the genre, if that makes sense. Oh. Well, I mean, I was going to say that, I mean, for me, normally I get I get to read novels in, in two batches every year or in the first month or two of the year and then towards the end of the year. So my year has been buried in reading short fiction, which has been, you know, it's been like it's an okay year, not an outstanding year. I feel like it's been, as you've all, you know, you've both said so far, I mean, there have been good things to read, things that I've really enjoyed that have come out in the field, but there hasn't been that really, you know, that one or two or three really exciting books. And there have been, frankly, although it's outside the remit mostly of what we're talking about today, a couple of major books that were very, very disappointing, I think you'd have to say. So it, it's been a bit of a okay year with stuff that's still well worth seeking out. And unfortunately, I mean, I haven't got to read outside of the genre much at all, though I now have a pile of books, you know, in my office here that I intend to read just as soon as I've turned in my year in review and I can move on to having a bit of time to read things like, you know, the Michael Chabon novel and a few others. So, you know, I, that will be... That's I, just say, I just say, the New York Times just published... <clears throat> It's a hundred uh, notable books of the year, um, and I've read of the fiction ones. They so split fiction and non-fiction fifty each, and the fiction is also further split between fiction and poetry. 
of the fiction ones, I've probably read 14 of them, uh, which, you know, well, good, bad, whatever. But I'd say <laughs> just looking at looking at that list, if, you, if, if people are interested in what's happening right at the moment, literary-wise, well, what happened in 2016, that is actually a, a very good place to start. I mean, you can wait one more week because the New York Times best five books of the year, well, again, in different categories will be out as well. But um, more so than possible, you know, the Amazon best of 2016 and Publishers Weekly best of 2016, the New York Times one sort of matches my tastes more. And I, I think just that's a that's a pretty good place to start if you're thinking of, um, if, you, if you want to read a little bit outside the genre, that is. Okay. And how about you, Gary? How was your reading year? Whoa, 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 whoa. We're doing this alphabetical order. You're up next, Jonathan. I, yeah, he just spoke. I, I just went. I interrupted him. Oh. That was it? Okay. Uh, I, I guess when I went back and looked at, at the, the books I'd uh, read for review, I was I was surprised at how many books I was pleased with. A lot of those were collections of stories, and a number of them were novellas. If you eliminate those and look at novels, I guess I had a, a, a year that more or less corresponded with other people's. There was some fine work, and it was um, there were a number of things that impressed me. I don't think I discovered anything completely new this year. Uh, I saw people doing things that they characteristically did well, doing them well again, and in some cases not so well again. But, but by and large, I, it, it was not an incompetent year, um, but I, I agree with everyone else that it didn't uh, reinvent the genre for me. I should also say for, for me, and I don't know if this affected you, the real world distracted me from my reading year, which failed to give me the solace I needed. You know, it was kind of like I wanted to be distracted, but for some reason, the, the real world kept dragging me back. Let, let's start doing it. We're going to go around and talk about maybe top five or so favorite books of the year. And we're going to do it again in alphabetical order, which means, Gary, you get to go last, you know, unfortunately. or Fine. Probably it means you get to be the wise person who wraps up, which is great. But James, leading off... I mean, I'm the one who gets to cross things off the list that other people have already mentioned. Well, don't you... you no. Wouldn't it be good to go one... To go around five times? Because the I, problem is that everyone... If, if we go... Yeah, let's go around five times. Let's do that. And we can add a book each time. Did you guys actually rank your books one to five? I didn't. No, no I no, didn't. Not, I didn't I either. Didn't. But I'm also scared if, uh, you know, if I go... If James goes first, I'll, I'll have two books to talk about. Okay. So. That's exactly what I was... Yeah, I'll try to remember how this bit out. I suggested that if, the, if someone nominates a book we've also nominated, we should all speak to it at the time and then move on yeah. to the next person in the Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. So we won't be doing 25 books, we'll be doing 12. <laughs> <laughs> so, James, what's your lead-off? Uh, I will. Oh, sorry, 20 books. Sorry, my mental arithmetic's falling down there. Um, look, the, the one I'd nominate first up, which is one of my favourite books of the year and one of the best books I've read this year, is the, and, and, you know, having just said that there you know, I, 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 I perhaps have not had those moments of excitement. This was a book I did have that moment of excitement about, and that's Colson Whitehead's book, The Underground Railroad, which I thought was, you know, a really powerful, um, quite confronting and kind of fascinating because it's a reminder book, fascinating book because it's a reminder of just how powerful and how effective those kind of techniques of kind of estranging the world that you can do with speculative fiction are when they're applied to the to the real world. I'm, I'm guessing it's probably on at least Ian's list as well. Um, that would be no, true. It's a hugely impressive book, I think, in a whole range of ways, and I feel it's beginning to get the kind of critical attention it should. So. Well, it was on my list as well. Oh, go ahead, John. 
Well, I wouldn't say it was on my list as well. And I think uh, it certainly has gotten the critical attention and it's, it's gotten the National Book Award and it's, uh, I think it's been a bestseller. I was concerned that uh, not enough people who were genre readers were going to go outside their comfort zone and read something, which is, after all, part steampunk, part horror fiction, part time travel fiction. He uses a lot of resources, both structural and narratological resources from genre. And we knew he knew how to do this from zone one way back when. But it's just a terrifically powerful novel that could not be as powerful as it is without the use of those speculative resources. Yes, but but on the contingency that you know the actual history of slavery in America in the 18, you know, in the 19th century, because um, if <laughs> this is this from as an Australian speaking, James might have been the same. John, if you read it in the same situation, I don't know, but. Look, I didn't know whether the Underground Rail, Railroad was in fact an actual train. I, oh. I, sort of, I sort of suspected it wasn't a real train, but actually it was just a metaphor for ferrying slaves or, or transporting them away from bad places, from, from their plantations, etc. But, but there were, I've looked at the, the Twitter discussion on this and, and other places, and there were people who thought it was an actual train, and so not everyone's going to trigger the fact that there's a big train in a, in a, in a sort of makeshift subway station that, uh, that, that this is, uh, this is fantastical. And then there's the, the different worlds in a sense, the different states that they go to, the Carolinas, etc. Mm-hmm. And again, it's not, he never makes it clear that these are in a sense thought experiments, each one of these, of how to treat slavery or different remedies to the, the question of slavery, both vicious and, uh, and disturbing. And again, if you're not keyed into the history, you might read, for example, I think the bit in South Carolina where it's sort of a eugenics experiment and think, well, maybe right. that's what happened then. Or the North Carolina one, which is essentially um, they, uh, they, were, they, were, they got rid of all their, their slaves and brought in Irish uh, immigrants instead. Again, um, and therefore any, any black person or person of colour in the state is hounded and taken out to the square and hung because they're not allowed to be there. So they didn't even have slaves. Yeah, and, and, and there was a business of, of the Tuskegee syphilis experiments, which actually took place, I think, in the 1930s, uh, and that's sort of brought into it, which is why I mentioned time travel. I think that's a legitimate concern, but I think that's a legitimate concern with any kind of historical fiction. Uh, yeah, and I'm, I'm not sure that it's the job of the novelist to kind of cater to readers not not kind of understanding the history. But, I mean, I thought that the, the Tuskegee stuff is very interesting. It's one of the things the book does is it kind of collapses mm-hmm. the time frames, and that pulling together, like that, that kind of sense that these the things are all happening in one moment, somehow really drives home a, the kind of legacy of trauma from slavery just kind of echoes into the present day. And I, I mean, I, th- I think it's a terrifically impressive book in a whole range of ways. I, th- I think there's one, one other thing I wanted to say about it, because I mentioned this in the review as well, that we've heard for years from, from, from Samuel Delaney and, and Ursula Le Guin and academics such as myself, that one of the defining moves of science fiction is the literalization of metaphor. And I've argued with Chip about that because it's very difficult to find an actual literalized metaphor that moves a science fiction story ahead. And yet this is the most precise example of a literalized metaphor of anything I've read in the last 20 years. Yeah, that's a, that's a good get, agreed. Okay. So. It's just a fantastic, no, it's a terrific book as, as you've all said. Okay. So Colson's Whitehead's The Underground Railway, strongly recommended. That's your fic, first pick, um, James. How about you, Ian? What's your first pick to go off, off the list as books were recommended? Well, that was on, now that, 
that was on my list. So does that mean I've now only got four picks? Or, no, you, you or, can have five if you want, or you can. You, I mean, you can overlap. It's, it doesn't really matter. We don't have to end up recommending okay. or discussing twenty books. It's your call. Well, Jonathan, for all I know, you've got very strict Hugo-like rules. No, 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 no. I'm so disenchanted <laughs> with every single award in the world. I'm happy to run this just <laughs> casually the way we want. All right. Well, to keep to keep the, the thing going, my first book is. Uh, Underground Airlines by Ben H. Winters, which is very well. It's not similar at all to the Colson Whitehead, and yet they both deal with um, slavery. Has anyone read it? I have a copy of it, and I, I was—I guess locusts or somebody thought it would be a good idea to do underground airways and air, airlines and underground. But you're right; it's 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 an alternate history in which slavery has not entirely been abolished, isn't it? It hasn't been abolished at all. Um, ah, so. So the, 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 the thrust is that this is, it's set in 2016, but, uh, where, um, the Emancipation Proclamation never happened, where the Civil War never occurred, and in fact, uh, the amendments, the American Constitution has been, uh, the amendments that were put in, um, to the, I think the Clause 18 and 17 or whatever, um, uh, all about, um, uh, maintaining Slavery in four states as a compromise position between uh, the, the the slave owners and the abolitionists to stop a civil war from happening. Now, as it happens in this history, there is a war that occurs in Texas. Interestingly enough, because uh, um, the, the the Texans decide that they can't stand slavery at all and uh, and push out the slave owners there. And so, so there, there there is some fighting that occurs in this history, but a civil war never happens. Of that we know of. So, and what we've got here is a book where the main character is a black man who has, uh, who escaped from a plantation via the underground airline. Again, not an actual plane. Oh. So it's a plane that uh, metaphor thing again, although it is, there is a joke that once someone did use a plane and it was found to be quite impractical. Anyway, um, and this, this character named Victor, not his real name, in fact is used by the, the, the northern side of the, the government to um, find escaped slaves and send them back to the south based on this, or those four states that still have slavery, based on this idea that this fear that if the northern states um, accept uh, these runaways, that the, those four states will will try to secede or, or, or go... Or, and, and they're powerful, these four states, because this is the, what I loved about it. Because labour is so cheap, they're actually quite a powerful force, not just in America, but internationally because they they can take they can um, they've got this this low labor or low low uh, capital situation so they're actually quite powerful as well so um yeah it's this it's this very um what's scary about it is that what seemed like a cautionary tale probably 6 months ago now feels like the foreshadowing of an, <laughs> of, an alt -right, of an alt right blueprint uh, and and, you, and you, we laugh, but there is actually a scene uh, that well, the character Victor goes to the south, and and there's a scene in this beautiful um, uh, city, uh, almost village-like, uh, bucolic and beautiful. But of course, on the windows, a sign saying, "This is a prejudiced establishment." Not, not we won't huh. take blacks, but just this is a prejudiced, prejudiced, a prejudiced establishment, and a place where if two black people start arguing with each other, the whites stand there and watch and smile and get entertainment from it. And it's just this oh, shivery down the spine stuff, and you think, wow, this isn't too far away. The book did court controversy. I'll be quick here, but the book did court controversy when it came out because there were other critics, not Winters himself, but a common action that Lev Grossman made saying that this was a 
a fearless novel because it was a white man writing from a black man's perspective about mm-hmm. slavery, which pissed off a lot of people saying, yeah. well, what does that mean if a black person writes about a black man writing about slavery? Uh, well, you know, Colson Whitehead, for example, that that's not fearless, that that's just, well, run of the mill, that's to be expected. But if a white guy does it, oh, my God. So that, that I think, pushed, turned a lot of people off the book. Uh, I would tell people, no, um, put all that stuff aside. This is actually quite a, uh, it's a fantastic novel, and it is genre, and it should it should be uh, read as such. But it, it wasn't marketed that way at all, though. Um. Well, no, but the, but all the critics that I read knew that this wasn't obviously. I mean, this is an alternate history. I mean, yeah, right. It, you know, it's it, it, no one, no one is running away from the fact that this is not America of today. So um, yeah, maybe it wasn't marketed in that it didn't have a splashy, colourful colour, but cover. But uh, yeah. I, I'm pretty. But the but the way it was received was as genre, not a well, yeah, sort of. You know, that sort of slipstreamy type of uh, thing. But anyway. Well, my own first pick sort of going to something that's much more core genre and, and deliberately chosen uh, so in the uh, context of the conversation we're now having is Alistair Reynolds' Revenger, which I thought was enormous fun. It's one of two books featuring pirates in this particular batch of books that I, I'm recommending for 2016 or that I read and loved. You know, it's a crossover between hard science fiction and space opera, between YA and adult fiction. It's, you know, t- you know two girls... In a you know, millions of the years in the years of the future, in a you know, on board a dark and strange pirate ship going off for adventure, and then the whole book sort of t- you know, turning away from that in the second half and becoming something sort of, I think, much more powerful and interesting, and really ending up in what I think is probably Al's best book to date, and was probably for me the best for want of a better description, straight science fiction novel I read all year, and one of the ones I've enjoyed most in the last three or four years, you know. So I would I would recommend it very highly. We had a chance to talk to Al on the podcast, and I, I really, really loved it. And that was on my list as well, because for the same reasons you're talking about, but uh, there, there is a sense, especially in a, and I don't want to imply that um, other novels at the literary mainstream end of the spectrum aren't fun, but this was a book which was almost all fun. It was well done. It was exuberant it was clearly in a, in a tradition of robert louis stevenson and um and, and, and victor hugo and other romance uh, writers and it, it just celebrated the field in a way not very many books do anymore mm-hmm. i look i i read it as well i i liked it i'm a huge admirer of reynolds um i don't know that i thought it was his best book i mean i felt i, I felt a bit like the the more playful elements kind of pulled against what I really like about his writing usually, which is that sense that it's very grounded in a, in a, mm. in a entirely kind of believable universe. Um, and I, I thought it lacked some of the kind of poetry you had, particularly in the most recent series, the, um, the, the Blue Remembered Earth books, which I think are often very beautiful books in a whole series of ways. I did like it though, and I did think it was a lot of fun. I, I, I also, Liked the sense in it, you know, and this is probably speaking about what I'm reading at the moment, but that sense that it's kind of, it's a book that's very much about a, about a deep future and a future which, in which the past has become incredibly remote. You know, that sense that it's in a, in a solar system where the earth is gone, you know, and right. everything's spread out. I thought that was, that was kind of fascinating at a, just mm. in a kind of 
as something to be reading. I mean, I liked it. I liked it very much. It wasn't on my list, but it's, it's, yeah, I mean, I enjoyed it. I'm not sure I enjoyed it as much as you two, and I think I probably preferred the last three books to it, but I did, I did like it, yeah. How about you, Gary? What's your first pick on the li- your list? Well, the first uh, two of my picks are already gone, but, uh, the, okay, let me, let me choose another one, which is in genre, but I would say not in the center, but close to the border, and that would be Guy Gabriel Kay's Children of Earth and Sky, uh, which returns to his imaginary Europe. Uh, again, it's interesting because in a way, like Revenger, this is a ro- very romantic kind of narrative. Um, but I found it just very gripping. It's, uh, it's, it's always, uh, a, a curious game to match his characters with historical precedents. But, uh, in this one, more than his other novels, I could understand the virtue of the argument that he makes about why he reinvents historical characters and figures with, with, with new names. He was able to do things with this novel, which I thought um, were would have been completely outside the purview of an historical novelist. And the fantasy elements, as in many of his novels, are not central to the narrative. I'm not sure whether that makes any difference to his readers. I'm not sure whether that makes much difference to fantasy readers at all. Um, it frankly doesn't concern me much one way or the other, but I enjoyed um, I enjoyed uh, Kay's novel enormously. Yeah, look, I think it's a hugely rewarding book. Uh, and I, it is on my list of my top five or ten books. Certainly, I think it's in my top five. Uh, but I have to say as well, I, can't, I, I, I was less immediately bowled over by it than I was by the uh, uh, Under Heaven River of Stars pair. Uh, I felt like those books were guy breaking new ground for him. Whereas this was more that instance where, and it's one of these things that always gets overlooked, I think, when you look around. When a, when a mature novelist, at the height of his powers, turns back to something that is to some degree the core of what he does, and delivers a really excellent version of what he does, it can get overlooked almost. I, I didn't get as much, I didn't hear as much noise about this book as I did about River of Stars or Under Heaven. And I think largely for that reason, it's kind of like what you expected from a Guy Gabriel K book, but I thought it was a really good one. Yeah. I, it was on my list as well, and I'd, I'd say almost exactly what you just said. I liked it, I liked it enormously. Um, I thought that perhaps the the setting felt more familiar perhaps to me than certainly River of Stars and Under Heaven, which I must say, I, you know, River of Stars is one of my favourite books of recent years. Um so, I mean, it's also that thing about kind of, that's one of my favorite books of recent years. So it's going to have to be pushing it to kind of get past that book. But, um, wow. yeah, no, I, I'd echo almost exactly what you said. It's certainly in, in the five that I've got written down here as well. But we should look upon ourselves as being incredibly efficient if we're doubling up, by the way. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> well, we it's also have to realize. It's, Sorry, good. It's not on my five. I've read it, although I loved it though, but it's yeah. not on my five. I just good. wanted to be clear. Well, we'll get through most of these, but I mean, one thing at least with overlapping is we don't have to spend 10 minutes talking about all 20 books, which could take a while. No. But, okay, let's throw back to you, James. What's your second pick uh, uh, from your list? I'm going to choose a book which I suspect is on none of your lists, which is a book by an Australian writer, Kirsten Tranter, called Hold, um, which is a, it's quite a small novel. It's only really barely more than a novella, I suspect. And it's, you know, it's a, it's set in Sydney, it's set now, and it's about a woman, you know, whose marriage is falling apart, 
basically. And she, they moved, they'd moved into a new house. And one day she finds a room in it, which they didn't know was there, which is a kind of twisted outside, I, I guess, the kind of geometry of, of the house. So this is kind of other space that she finds her way into. And it's a book that's very much, it's about grief. Um, it's about recovery from grief and it's an incredibly acute social portrait of a particular kind of Sydney malaise. And there's, there's a particular kind of inner city culture in Sydney, which is now almost entirely passed away. It was very particular. It was the kind of world of painters like Brett Whiteley and, and, or, and a lot of the, the writers and people who came out of that moment. Um, it was the world of the inner suburbs of Sydney, of, uh, of King's Cross, of Balmain, of Darlinghurst, and they're all gone now. They're all filled with bankers and they're all completely gentrified. But it, it is an absolutely beautiful kind of note-perfect rendering of both, uh, I guess, the kind of creepiness of that world um, and, and just what it was like. So I, I really, really liked it a lot. Um, and it's a book that I think didn't get anywhere near enough attention. Um, but it is, it was published as a, as a literary novel. It's essentially a genre novel. It's a ghost story, you know, and a very good one. Well, I'm sold. Yeah. I mean, I actually hadn't heard of the book, so I'm, I, it'll go onto my list to hunt down or maybe even to ask for Christmas. <laughs> <laughs> How bit, okay. Ian, what's next on your list? Um, the Sudden Appearance of Hope by Claire North is on my list. Next. Did you want me to talk about? Oh, yes. Sorry. That, that is in fact the point. Yes. <laughs> I mean, given yes, that we, um, we no, look, given that we conspicuously failed to record that particular roundtable, yes, this I know. is the moment. And this isn't this isn't a matter of guilt. It is actually a really good book. It's not like oh, we didn't speak about it, therefore we need to speak about it now. But I thought, look, um, it's. It's, it's as, look, I haven't read all of Claire North's work. I mean, I haven't read all of her work in, under different, different names. Uh, but I do find that I enjoy the Claire North authored stuff more than the, uh, than the, I can't remember what the other pseudonym is. But, uh, um, this is a book where, did we all read it, by the way? No. I read I it. Okay. I mean, I mean, it's actually in the title what the book's about. It's about, uh, Hope, who is, um, who, from a young age, finds out that people have this knack of forgetting her. It starts gradually, but after a while, they don't just, uh, you know, they, they completely forget her, uh, including her family. And there's, you know, one of the points is that she has to actually leave because her parents have no recognition of her at all. So it's a, it's an Alzheimer's, but where everyone else is suffering it, and, you, uh, and, you're, and you're fine. And it's only in regards to you. And what, what Claire North does so well here is that, um, you know, the, the theme of being forgotten, of being lonely, it runs throughout the whole novel. But the mechanics of it is also kept consistent. So it's not just, wouldn't this be a cute metaphor about loneliness mm-hmm. or about, you know, being alone. It's also well worked out from a genre, world-building sort of way in that, uh, you know, she sets the rules up. That is that, um, and the reason why people do notice uh, Hope is that uh, she can be captured by film, Um and uh, and video and that so this idea that it's it's a very much a human symptom not a, a technological one so uh, the fact that she can she can in a sense be remembered and when people do see her again they don't remember their previous times with her but they have this feel that you know when they, when they and usually buttressed by the fact that they've watched video of her so that so they sort of have to artificially put to fill the holes 
up and, and look, it, it's a thriller as well. It's a, you know, there's this whole um, uh, conspiracy thing about a, a big company has got this new product out, and I'm not going to go into all the plot stuff because, frankly, I read it months ago and I don't rem- I don't remember all the uh, plot details. But really, it's a it's quite a powerful novel about what it is to be forgotten and to be marginalised and to be on the on the side and 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 also interestingly enough if this could be cured would you want it to be because you get this feel from hope that after a while it's just something she's adapted and come accustomed to and in fact isn't so upset about it so well she is but not 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 as much as you'd think so um i thought look very very really really good novel another strong book from uh, claire north and yeah one of the best of the year easy Excellent. I had not uh, I had not read the, uh, the Fifteen Lives of Harry August, so this was the first thing of hers I read, and I was impressed in the same way you described that she had worked it out the way a science fiction writer would work out the details of this condition. Uh, and I, I don't know that I don't know if she was aware that you know there's a kind of tiny tradition of people of forgettable people uh, that one of the superpowers in the uh, Deb Cotty and Scott Westerfeld and Margot Lanigan Zeros, one of his superpowers is nobody can remember him. And there are a couple of Harlan Ellison stories with that theme. I think there's a Robert Cormier young adult novel with it. Um, so it's, but it's worked out as more than a metaphor. I was not impressed by the thriller plot at all, and I don't remember it much either. Um, but the condition, uh, and you're right, it's, it's like an inverted Alzheimer's where, where you're not forgetting, but you're being forgotten. And that, I thought, was handled with a lot of grace and skill. And I'm, I've got her next novel, The End of the Day, in front of me now, and I haven't started it yet. But now I'm looking forward to reading more of her work. See, I'm, I see now I'm jealous because I want to read it. <laughs> Thank, thanks, Gary. Okay, anytime. <laughs> I'm looking at it right now, Ian. Yeah, yeah I don't like him much either, Ian. I wouldn't worry about it. It happens to me all the time. I don't get the books either. Because that's out in April next year, isn't yeah. it? It's, a, it's, an April, it's an April book, is that right? Yeah. Yeah, okay. Well. <laughs> but, but Good on let's you. not okay. go on to 2017 yet. We still have a few okay. days left in 2016, and I, for one, am clinging to them, you know, we're, we're sort of grimly, you know, before we, we're catapulted into next year. Okay, so let's cycle around. That's your, Gary? No, it's my turn next. My turn for the next book. Oh, it? yeah. Okay. In July of this year, I took my young family to Italy for a vacation, and we spent the first week running around in Rome and in, um, in Florence and having a wonderful time, but it was busy and it was hot and hectic, and the second week, we went to this villa in a remote part of Tuscany, uh, and during the evenings, as the sort of summer languished its way away, I sat down and I read Golden Hand by Garth Nix, which is the fifth of the old Kingdom books, a series of young adult novels set in a, in a, in a world where... Death is a really present part of, of, of life and of the kind of magic that you see. Um, Golden Hand for My Money is one of the best books of the year, one of the best young adult books I read all year, one of Garth's best books. I mean, it's enormously engaging. It helped, you have to, unfortunately, have read most of the rest of the series and probably in the order they're written. This is a direct follow on from Aborson, but picks up a lot of the, plot elements of Clariel as well and brings them to resolution. We're immersed back in, in, in the world of the Clare. Uh, we deal with Lyriel, with free magic, with the 
creatures would come to love, all kind of thing. It's really quite a fabulous book and enormously, enormously entertaining and would be easily one of my top five books of the year and one I would hope to see on awards lists everywhere. I, I really thought very highly of it. How about you, James? Uh, yes, I have to confess I didn't put Garth's book on my five because I knew one of you would choose it and then we'd be able to talk <laughs> But yes, no, he's sitting at the top of my list above that. Um, and no, absolutely, I, I thought it was terrific. I mean, I, I loved, I always feel like the Old Kingdom books are the kind of core of what Garth does. And, um, this is one of the really cool ones. I really liked the last one, which I thought did some really interesting things about a character who doesn't, you know, who essentially doesn't change, um, and is very angry. Um, I thought this was in some ways a more, conventional kind of group of characters at the centre of it, but in a way that made it more rewarding. Um, uh, which is not to say I didn't like the last one. I liked it very much. But, um, you know, no, I, I, w- I would echo all of that. I mean, and I, the, 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 it's, it's, it's just a terrifically well-realised book. And every time you go back to those old kingdom books, you realise how kind of ahead of its time the series was when he began it on a whole series of things to do with kind of gender representation and you know, the fact that all of the main characters are women and all of that, you know, which was all being done before that became a kind of thing that people did. You know, Garth just did it, which which I think is another one of their strengths. No, it's a terrific book. I liked it. I mean, I think it's one of those books that really shows Garth as the heir to the Diana Wynne Jones, Joan Aiken school of young adult fantasy. But you're right about what he does with the Old Kingdom books. I think there is a warmth that he brings to them in, in, in the tone of the books that isn't as fully realized in some of his other work. I mean, I'm reading another one, one of his books right now and enjoying it very much. But there's something particularly special about that, about this, about the realization of the world, about its consistency, about how he structures it, about the kind of characters he chooses to draw. And it makes it immensely engaging all the time. So, I mean, I, I give it a very, you know, the highest recommendation. But we should probably turn around now to Gary and say, Gary, what's your next book? Well, I'm, I'm down to, I think I have two that haven't been mentioned so far. Let me, let me recommend a book that by an author that I am beginning to think I like better than anybody else does these days, and that's Christopher Priest. And it's his novel, The Gradual, uh, which is set in this dream archipelago. It's set initially in a kind of dystopian society with a young man looking out his window and seeing one of the islands. But it turns out to be a fairly sophisticated consideration of music and art and life and obviously the usual time shifts that the title refers to uh, time deficits that uh, you incur when you go to a different islands in the gradual. But he uses that in a narrative, again, uh, literalizing narrative time by actually making the time shift. That's only a technique. The actual human uh, level of the novel is, I think, completely well-realized, heartbreaking in many ways, and it doesn't have the flaw that some of his earlier work, like The Islanders, I think it does, of trying to jump around among too many characters at once and trying to connect too many lines and too many relationships. This is very much a character study of a musician. Okay. Oh, it's, it's, on my, it's on my books to read. I'll, I'll probably read it either this month or early next month. It's so, yes, I haven't forgotten Chris Priest. I mean, actually, I'm in that situation with a couple of books. I'm, you know, the, the final in the, uh, 
the Hutchinson series, yep. the third book. I mean, uh, that, that's yeah. that's not something I've read yet, but I will be reading it in the next few weeks. So there's a, a few gaps in my personal 2016 uh, 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 list. Yeah. I think we would all probably admit to that. I mean, I've spent so much time reading short fiction myself that, you know, I can't say that I'm, I'm coming to a recommended list from having read hundreds of books. I wish I could. I mean, I haven't read The Gradual yet, and I very much want to. Uh, I've loved some of uh, Priest's earlier books. I very much intended to read The Clare North, and I'm, I'm, I'm still waiting for my copy of The Colson Whitehead to arrive. So, I mean, that's probably the first thing I'm going to read when I end up, you know, deliver my year's best. I'll sit down and read The Underground Railway. Uh, but it's just one of the, those, those things. Probably one of the things as well with, with the, the gradual is that it hasn't been as widely available as you would hope it might be. And that, that sort of affects the way it's being discussed. But it does seem to have arrived and so far not made the noise you hope it would be, would have, even though it got a very good review, I think, in the Times Literary Supplement from Mike Harrison. I think one of the problems is the Dream Archipelago stories are to some extent specialized stories at this point. I, it, 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 since since that film was made of, uh, what was it, The Illusionist or uh, not, the, not The The Illusionist. Prestige. Prestige. The Prestige. Well, they were made. But, but I think that's what American uh, readers want from him is another kind of historical, uh, you know, magic show. And, and really what he does best and what he's getting better and better at is finding ways to use the Dream Archipelago to write the novels he wants to write. See, I've got to say. It's a beautiful novel. I've got to say, I think the separation is his fair. best thing. Yeah. I, I think the separation is the best thing he did. Um, and I wish there was more of that and, frankly, a little bit less of the Dream Archipelago. But you were going to say something, James, I think? Oh, I was going to say, to be fair, I think one of the problems Chris Priest, or Christopher Priest also has is, you know, as someone who admires him, I think he is a writer I admire rather than like um, most of the time because the books very deliberately refuse to give writers, uh, readers a bunch of kind of narrative and emotional satisfactions that I think people sure. kind of expect from books. And there's a level at which, you know, there's a level at which you kind of admire that, but there's another level at which it can make the books, you know, there's something almost perverse about it sometimes, about a kind of refusal to to kind of give you the kind of payback that you want from the book. And it does, and as I say, it's one of the reasons that I find I read his books and I admire them rather than liking them usually, you know. Um, and, I mean, I suspect that may be part of the reason he doesn't necessarily get the attention that people feel they should. Well, let's circle around. So, James, what would be the, your next, you know, off the list? Uh, so I'm going to go with two. We were allowed to pick associational books, and I'm going to pick two of them now. I'll, I'll pick my next two of that. The thing I really liked, which I thought was terrific, was Tom King and Gabriel Hernandez-Walter's Visions series, which Marvel just finished, which was a 12-part comic about the Vision, the character from the Avengers, um, and it's about the Vision having wiped his wiped his kind of emotional memory, tries to go back to kind of being human and builds himself a family and moves to the suburbs and tries to live with this kind of synthesoid wife and two synthesoid children and synthesoid dog which all proceeds to go horribly wrong incredibly fast. Um, and, look, it's terrific. It's it's incredibly creepy. It's incredibly sad. You know, it's it, it's a really terrific example of the kinds of things that comics can do and also the kind of things that you can do within those kind of huge interconnected universes of 
of the Marvel and the DC universe. I mean, there's a series of wonderful kind of moments that kick around in the series. I mean, there's, there's a great bit at one point where the Vision keeps saying, I've saved the world 28 times. But I forget what the number is. I think it's 28. But there's a wonderful one where his synthesoid wife is asking him to come home and deal with something. He's busy fighting some giant monster with the other Avengers. He's like, well, I really can't get there right now. I'm kind of in the middle of something. You know, <laughs> you know it's kind of – but also – you know, the flip side is that is you have moments where, like, the Vision's kind of half-brother, who's also another kind of child of Ultron, turns up as as another kind of lost character within within the narrative and th- that ends up going somewhere else altogether. But, you know, at the beginning it's really very affecting, you know. so It's, it's amazing. It's amazing. I've read it. Yeah, it's terrific. Okay, Ian, what's the next off your knowledge uh, cab off your rank? I'm surprised no one's mentioned this one yet. Uh, the Lo- Lovecraft Country. It's my next one up. I'm looking oh, at a copy right now. Well, oh, well, there you go. Sorry. Uh, no, no, not at all. <laughs> do you want me to skip it? No, please do not. <laughs> go for it. Uh, oh, this is just, uh, oh, this is my second uh, book about um, discrimination and, uh, and, and, and the treatment of uh, people of colour and black people in America because that's really what the, what Lovecraft Country is about. Um, it's, uh, it's actually, in a sense, a set of linked novellas. Would you agree, Jonathan? Because the, there isn't the, the, the characters remain consistent throughout, but the focus changes from store, well, novella or novelette from novelette. So it's not the same um, uh, perspective from the beginning of the book. Um, and the, the the opening is probably the longest piece, and then they're they're, they're shorter from that point on. But um, look. I'm not going to go, because uh, plot details, I, I'm, I'm terrible at explaining them. You're better than me, Jonathan, and you've read it, so you can explain them if you want. But it's just, it's just so, it's both inventive, but, but brilliant. I mean, this, this idea, the idea that that was just new to me wasn't, isn't even the, the genre idea. It's the idea that, that, that in the early 20th century, um, people of colour or, or black men in particular had to go out and essentially create their own tour guide, their own guide of America, as in places that were safe for black people to go without, you know, in other parts of the country. And the fact that such a thing actually existed, this is not a fiction of, of the novel, but a real item is, is just reminds you of, uh, well, I don't know what it reminds you of now, but I was going to say where we've been and where we've come, but, you know, you sort of feel like, do we, do we need to go back to that? Do we need to have... Every every um, uh, every religion or marginalised person now will need a, a guidebook to guide them through places yeah. around uh, around their country. And I'm I'm Australian, but speaking of America, around America, just to make sure that they don't uh, step foot in a place where they're likely to get lynched. Um, that that more than uh, the genre stuff was great. You know, you've you've got that. It's actually not a book about Lovecraft. Lovecraft, the author, is a real person. I'm right there, Jonathan. Yeah. 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 But the cult, there is a cult, and the cult sort of has Lovecraftian elements to it. And uh, Lovecraft Country is more a, 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 an atmosphere and a tone. I mean, it's a pl- it's 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 a place as well, in a sense. But it's more an atmosphere and a tone than a than a uh, than a, a sign that this is going to be about Cthulhu, because it isn't. It's more than that. But um, yeah, it's just a, a really powerful piece of writing, and 
should again it, it seemed to get quite a bit of buzz when it, when it came out, but as always, it, that sort of drifted away a bit. But uh, well, yeah, that's, that's the nature good. of the year. I mean, it's one of a series of books we received this year or, or that were published this year that riffed off Lovecraft in this kind of space. Quite interestingly, I mean, because obviously Victor Laval did it with the Ballad of Black, Black Tom, using the same Lovecraft story as a as a you know jumping off point. Kids Johnson did it with um, the Dream Quest of Velvet Bow. And probably in some ways most significantly, Matt Ruff did it with Lovecraft Country. I think when you look at it and you hear it described, there's a risk that it might sound as though it is a lecturing kind of a book or a, you know, a, 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 a book which is over, overtly worthy or something. When actually what it is, is it's a fabulously entertaining book. It's very smart. It's wonderfully written. Matt Ruff is a fabulous writer. He evokes this this horrible world where the real I mean the real horrors of Lovecraft Country are not you know the you know the ancient you know, the order of the ancient dawn and what they do and what they encounter and everything else it really is this political world that we're living in of Jim Crow racism but Ruff does a fabulous job of of evoking it of exposing it of bringing it to modern readers and making them aware of it without. You make making you feel as though something's been shoved down your throat, and I think that's really important at this point in time. So it's absolutely one of my my five or six books. Yeah, look, I agree, and and I just added to that that a bit like the Colson Whitehead, it it takes the uh, the, that one issue and looks at it from different perspectives. So we have a black woman who becomes a white woman. Uh, That's right. Please correct me if I've missed something here. But yeah, yeah, again, to look at to look at. discrimination and racism from a different lens. And so, and it's constantly doing things like that, the novel. That's what makes it so interesting and inventive. It's a, it's a genuinely inventive genre novel. So, uh, and, and it play, and it pushes gender as well. It isn't just race. So, uh, uh, yeah, wonderful book. But as you said, it's not uh, this prescriptive, uh, lecturing, um, novel. It's, it's very, it's a lot of, there's so much invention genre wise. Um, including including the ghost in the house and yep. the and the, di- and the and there's the diagram of the of the planets and 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 then there's portals and there's all sorts of shit going on. It is a pretty fabulous book, and yes. highly recommend it. I'll skip around. I kind of feel that, that it's worth having different kind of books on this list. And one of the books that gave me the most joy in 2016 was unveiled as the year went along, and then only actually physically released towards the end of the year, and that was Bloom County, Episode 11, A New Hope, wherein our intrepid cartoonist, Berkeley Brethard, after having taken <laughs> 20, 25 years off uh, you know, creating uh, the, the characters of Bloom County and his wonderful lead character, Opus, returns to Bloom County, awakens you know, uh, Opus to a world that seems horrifically, suspiciously like the, the, you know, the, the world that, that he, he fled when he fell asleep back in the 1980s, at around the same time when Brethard, you know, found himself unable to bear the idea of cartooning it any longer. You know, a world faced with Donald Trump and other kind of things. And using all sorts of clever and funny and sensitive and caring ways, the story and the art leads you through the year we just have. I mean, there's the passing of Prince, the, 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 you know, the death of David Bowie, the, the, the existence of Donald Trump, but also all these really touching and funny and human moments that the characters bring to it alongside a political campaign to sort of, you know, support, you know, two spaces after every period, which you really couldn't argue very much with. 
Um, <laughs> it's really quite fabulous. I mean, I'm quoted in the book, so that makes me like it a little bit more. Uh-huh. But um, I do. I, I recommend it very, 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 very highly, and it sits in my top group of sort of loosely genre-related books for 2016. Gary. Well, I was uh, expressing gratitude, and I express gratitude again to, to sort of get us out of the novels-only category, because one of the things I was going to say was one of the most enjoyable discoveries I had last year was finding out what you could do with Lovecraft again. Uh, and one of my favorite reading experiences of the year was Kitch Johnson's The Dream Quest of Bella Bolt, but it's a novella, and there were a lot of novellas to like. But there was that, there was Victor Laval's The Ballad of Black Tom, there was the Matt Ruff book, which I haven't read. There's uh, certainly what's going to be on my list for 2017 is Paul LaFarge's The Night Ocean, which is another reinvention of Lovecraft and uh, and so forth. And I, I think that was an important kind of gesture for the whole field to be making in 2016. And yet, with the exception of Lovecraft Country, it came out in the form of, of short stories and novellas. So the problem I had was I had a lot of works uh, that I would like to have included that were either story collections or novellas. I liked China Mayables' The Last Days in New Paris, which is actually a, a, a novella. I, I, I enjoyed Bruce Sterling's Pirate Utopia, which is very strange, but which became more and more relevant to the American situation as I was reading it in November. Um, and it turns out to be, in many ways, in terms of its political and economic extrapolation, classic Bruce Sterling thinking. Um, there was, uh, at the end of the year, there was Kaya Shanti Wilson's A Taste of Honey, another novella. So when I looked at my list, I was surprised at how many of the stories I really enjoyed reading this year were novella-length stories. I feel like you're cheating a little bit. You are allowed to recommend a novella-length book or a short story collection or anything you want as one of your top ten. I mean, what, the only reason I didn't recommend The Dream Quest of Velvet Bow is because I edited it, and I feel like that compromises my ability to recommend it, though I think it is one of the best things I read all well, all year. Uh, but I'm, okay, hor- I'm horrid, horribly biased, but, you know, I loved it. I would put that on my list. It actually was on my list, but I didn't know whether novellas were allowed. And by the same token, since we're running out of time, I was impressed at the number of good story collections I saw this year. We had actually had talked uh, as a group about La Vitidar's Central Station stories. Uh, Peter Straub had a retrospective called Interior Darkness. Ken Liu had a retrospective, Paper and Menagerie and other stories. There was a Michael Swanwick collection, a Joe Abercrombie collection. Uh, there were a lot of... Um, uh, Eleanor Arneson's Four Hats stories. So again, when I was looking back at my experience of reading the year, would I want to pick one of those as the top five books of the year when you're comparing short story collections to novellas to novels? That's where I got confused, and that's why I'm just trying to shovel everything in in the last five minutes. Of the <laughs> no, no, podcast. no. We're going to stretch a little bit. We've got, no, we got another book each to get through, so we're going around, okay. whether you cheat or not. So, okay. G- okay. Gary didn't mention anything, and then... So, James, what, what is the last of your top five? <laughs> do, I, do I need to... You know, you know, this is the fourth. This is not the fourth? fourth. What's, fourth. Your, what's your next, James? Oh, the Lord might have been wiped out. I've only got one to go. Oh, that's good. Um, that's fair enough, yeah. Uh, but look, is it worth me sandwiching in some of the others very quickly that yes, I liked? Yes, absolutely. Please. Afterwards? Uh, look, because uh, I want to have... Uh, all right. Um, look, I very much enjoyed Dexter Palmer's version control. Um, which I oh, I've got to read that. Yes, good, good, good. Yeah, good one. I want to yeah, see that. fascinating book. Really liked it. Um, I think, in fact, the science fictional elements are the weakest thing in it. 
Um, but it was kind of interesting to me because it was an attempt to do a kind of, I guess, a kind of thick realism, which was about the near future. So it was a bit like reading a Jonathan Franzen novel, which happened to be set in 2030. <laughs> <laughs> and that, that kind of fascinated me. I liked that element of it very much. Um, I also very much enjoyed Dave Hutchinson's um, latest Europe book, Europe in Winter, um, which I, I I fear is not actually the end of the series. <laughs> um, I, 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 I always like these things to kind of finish. There's a little bit which I'm, I'm excited because there'll be another one, but there's another part of me that thinks, really, it's not going to be a trilogy. It's going to be a, you know, tetralogy. Um, it's going to keep on going, but no, I like that very much. Um, a collection which was published as a literary collection, which I liked very much by Alexander mm. Weinstein. Not, in fact, by Max Weinberg. I walked into a bookshop and said, oh, what is this I remember his name. It's by Max Weinberg. And the guy looked at me and said, that's Bruce Springsteen's drummer, mate. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, oh, good, you know. Um, several really terrific stories in it, I thought. I very much like Levita Ha's book, which we talked about on the show. I very much like Garth's book, which we've already talked about uh, earlier. I liked Madeline Ashby's book very much, and I liked the new Paul McCauley very much. Yeah. Um, the book I wanted to talk about last is not actually a science fiction novel. Okay. Um, it, except in the sense that the world it ends up in is our contemporary world, which is to me an entirely science fictional world. And that book is Annie Prue's Barkskins, which is probably the book that affected me most I've read this year. Uh, it is a novel that begins in the seventh, beginning of the 17th century, uh, and it goes to about 10 years from now. I think it ends in the near future or right now. Um, and it's basically about the destruction of the forest in North America. Um, it is incredibly violent. It is incredibly confronting. And by the end, it is this kind of incoherent kind of cry of despair about what's happening to the world and particularly the kind of environmental uh, the environmental conditions of the world um and i look i'm recommending for a couple of reasons one is that i think that the world it ends up talking about a world where you know species are being wiped out where 70 percent of the forests are gone where the oceans are dying the world we actually live in is a science fictional world and also because I just wish more science fiction was engaged with environmental issues because it seems to me they are the biggest thing facing us mm. today. I do not feel, I feel like science fiction is almost uniquely equipped to talk about them. And when it does it, it does it extremely well. And there is surprisingly little of it. And what there is of it is not very celebrated. And that seems to me to be a great pity. So I, I'm kind of recommending that as a kind of, you know, I, I wish it was more environmental science fiction that was kind of deeply engaged with this sense of what we're doing to the world. Um, and, and you know, as I say, I mean, I feel like the book where it ends up, you know, the world it's showing you is so horrific, it's a science fictional world. So there, there's my weird associational book that is not really a speculative novel. Okay. I will say I think that one thing you're going to see is that environment – well, science fiction that is derived from an environmental standpoint is going to become more and more common. I see it becoming the most common kicking off point for science fiction stories around the place. It's, it's happening more and more at short fiction, and I think you'll see a lot more of it in the coming decade as it becomes more difficult to ignore it as, as, as a, a thing in our world. Ian? I have, I have, a, concern, I have a concern about that, though. What's that? Uh, I, I, I started reading the first couple of chapters of, of Stan Robinson's New York 2140, which is terrific. It looks like it's going to be terrific. 
And I've, I've read a lot of the short fiction, and certainly your own Drowned Worlds anthology has stories like this. Is there a concern, though, that in a science fiction consensus future, this drowned Florida, drowned New York, drowned Venice has become such an accepted part of the future that there's no sense of urgency? Is, does, this, does science fiction create a sense of fatalism about the environment by continually portraying basically drowned worlds? I think that's a much bigger topic than we've got time for, Gary. Well, maybe we could talk no. about it on a separate podcast because I think it's an important question. Well, I think it is an important question. I mean, what interests me is that I wish I saw more science fiction which felt like reality. Does that make sense? Hmm. You know, I mean, I think we live in a world which in many ways is so weird already that I wish I read, I, I was reading more science fiction that felt like it was in the world. Does that make, yeah. uh, am I making any sense yeah. at all? Yeah. No, no, and no, no, I think no, no. when I was talking before about my kind of frustration with a lot of what I was reading this year was that, you know, I, I, I felt like, I felt like the world is now so out of control that the fantastical feels like a retreat. That's as much about where I am at the moment, I have to say, personally. But it is, there's a level at which, you know, I kind of, I, I kind of want to feel this kind of full engagement with the kind of world around us. And it seems to me that the environmental aspects of it are incredibly important. And that doesn't necessarily mean drowned worlds. No. I mean, that means dealing with the fact no. that, you know, fires are everywhere, floods are, I mean, how do we talk about that world? And science fiction is the genre that's got the tools to do it. You know, right. so, so you know, that, that, that was my kind of weird rant at the end of the show. <laughs> <laughs> Let me throw across to Ian. What are your, your last yeah, couple of books? I don't, I, don't have a, I don't have a weird rant. Sorry. Oh, good. Um, but I am going to shove some, so I'm going to do a, a few, not a lot, but so don't worry. Uh, I'm going to mention uh, Vigil by Angela Slater, which I thought was a very yeah. strong urban fantasy novel, and I, don't, I can't stand urban fantasy, so... Um, I thought that was a really, really good book and uh, very entertaining, quite a lot of fun um, and played at the edges of, of what urban fantasy is and should be. So, uh, no, really, really, really good piece of work. Um, and a couple of other fun novels. Uh, I Am Providence by Nick Mamatis. I got a really good laugh about, uh, laugh at, laugh with. When, when's it when you, you're laughing with the book? I think that's here. Yeah, that's what I was trying to say. Um <laughs> So it actually, it's, it's got it's got a bit of criticism because of the way. <laughs> so it's set in a, a, a Lovecraft convention, and uh, yeah, th- th- these are not nice people. Although some of them, are, and uh-huh. you know, for, for some people, it's um, choose you know pick the person based in the real world. You know, which one is St. Joshi, for example? Which one is Nick himself? Although that's most uh-huh. likely the, the author who dies at the beginning. Um, so you know, so there's a lot of that. It's very funny. It's very sharp. It's very naughty. It, uh, it, you know, you will cringe at some of the stuff that goes on at the convention at panels. Um, it's uh, it's a murder mystery as well. It's got a there's this great running gag. The, so the murder mystery is uh, the, this author may or may not be based on Nick who dies uh, at the very beginning, and uh, he he's a ghost and his job is twofold. It's one to sort of contextualise Lovecraft historically in terms of, of Lovecraft himself, but also the fandom that's sprung up from him. But also <laughs> to have this running gag where these fans are brought in by the police to stare at his body, just to remind them that someone had died at their convention and they should take the murder mystery seriously. Because the, <laughs> the ghost never leaves the morgue. 
So the only way to justify having this ghost character other than the historical stuff is to have characters actually dragged into the morgue, which becomes a bit of a running gag, which I found funny. Anywho, um, so I, I really enjoyed that. Um, I also enjoyed uh, My Best Friend's Exorcism, which is as entertaining as the title sounds, by Grady Hendricks, who is a contributor for Tor.com. He does the Stephen King reread, and he also does Freaky Friday, where he takes a really shitty horror novel from the 1980s, of which I've read most. Um, so this is probably these, – these are the – you remember Zebra? Mm-hmm. Zebra, as it would have been called, mm-hmm. Jonathan? Or, yeah. Not, not Del Abyss, not the Del Abyss books, but the ones, you know, the, um, Zebra was one of them and a couple of others. Really horrible, you know, garish covers, and he takes the piss out of them, which is funny. Uh, this book also takes the piss out of the whole – satanic fervor that occurred in the 1980s where every man and his dog was part of a cult and you know it's got uh, interspersed within the story there are these photo montages of how to warn your child of uh, that there's a satanist around the corner and it's just it's again and it, and it involves an exorcism as well on top of everything so uh, very very funny book just to you know make it a little bit just get a bit more serious I, just one collection that i uh, really liked was um and I've got to get the title because it's a long one. And I, we just we are discussing it for the writer and the critic. We just did the discussion. Uh, what is not yours is not yours by Helen Oyemi, which I thought was a very um, complicated, complex, funny, smart. Oh, just all the platitudes. It's just just brilliant stuff. Um, my first taste of Oyemi, and she does play again in the genre margins. Um, mm-hmm. So uh, there's this um, magnificent story in there about. Uh, a man and a wife and husband, who, uh, they're doing an experiment to, to, you know, in terms of people who deal with grief and a way of possibly dealing with grief. And it ends up being this beautiful um, elegy on, 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 on how to deal with grief, but also um, the, the, the lives that we never had. So the, the female character imagines, she doesn't imagine, she literally lives the life uh, of having a son, of that son growing up, of that son having a family of his own. It's just just beautiful. But it's, again, it's that sort of slipstreamy on the edge of genre that, uh, you know, you can't put a finger on. And just to end off, um, to, just just generally, look, we read genre, we love it, but frankly, we're missing out if we're not reading the works of basically the entirety of Ireland. So if that is the whole country of Ireland, both, you know, the uh-huh. bit that's not – you know, north and south or whatever. Um, that's probably horrible, me, what I've just said. But um, Irish fiction is fantastic. And so you've got Kevin Barry, who won the Goldsmith last year for Beetlebone. Did you read Beetlebone, James? Oh, Beetlebone is fantastic. Yes, <laughs> it is. And this year, and then you've got uh, Aimer or Ima McBride, who, uh, who's uh, written a number of novels, but won this year uh, Lesser Bohemians, which was great. But the two that I wanted to point out, uh, and there's more than just that, but the two I wanted to point out were Mike McCormack and uh, um, Anna Carter Schofield. Um, again, these aren't um, genre novels. Well, actually, Solar Bones, the Mike McCormack, could be because it's um, the the state of the narrator is not made clear. So whether that person is alive or dead. So um, it could be a ghost speaking to us. But, again, it's, it's written essentially as one long 230-page sentence. Not exactly. It's a bit more complicated than that. But, uh, uh-huh. it's, but, but, but it's amazing how, how it just flows. And it's, it's about the minutiae of living in a small county in Ireland and this guy's an engineer and he's fixing bridges and 
I don't know, it just resonated with me for some reason. I'm not even an engineer, but it resonated with me. And his life with his family and just the, the things that drive us through every day, you know, just the miniature, which sounds utterly dull, but is beautifully depicted by McCormack. And Martin John, which is the Anna Canna Schofield book, is sort of basically about a child molester. Well, he's, well he flashes. <laughs> it's not clear whether he molests, but it's um, what's amazing about that, because, you know, you say to someone, hey, why don't you read this book about a child molester? is it's usually huh. a put off for most people but it's it's set mostly in his head and you see you get this sort of fractured view of the of the world but it's also set in the in the from the perspective of his mother who doesn't know what to do with him and just others in his life and it's it uses a lot of white space so it's a book that you want to buy it's on a not a it's on an ebook friendly uh, sort of book it's because it uses a lot of white space and a lot of pausing and that and it's just again another innovative smart brilliant book out of Ireland and uh, yeah we should all be reading more Restriction is I don't know how many Irish authors genre authors out there because uh, you guys know this. There are a bunch, yes. It depends it's on Ian McDonald comes to mind. Oh, yeah, okay. Yeah. He lives there. Yeah. I think he's born in England. But, um, yeah. So well, these I'm just saying Irish fiction. That's where it's at. Yeah. The rest can go and get stuffed. That's where it's <laughs> at. So uh, yeah, and that's my 2016 in a nutshell. Fair enough. Well, I mean, I've not got a lot to add. I mean, other, unless I start sort of running through and name checking and summaries. I did want to talk about, and it, uh, it was on my list, uh, Charlie Jane Andrews' All the Birds in the Sky, which I think is a fabulous, if flawed book. I think it's uh, a wonderful uh, melange of young adult, adult, of science fiction, of fantasy, of gender issues, of other future issues. Really cleverly done, uh, really well written, very evocative, and has that kind of sort of spiky feel that uh, uh, Andrews fiction tends, tends to have. Uh, and probably in my mind, it sort of sits alongside writers like, you know, I mean, Madeleine Ashby with Company to Town, which I really liked. Um, I was a little surprised, Ian, you didn't mention Yoon Ha Lee's book, Nine Fox Gambit. Uh, yes, his, I was going to mention that one. Yes, I like that too. Yoon Ha Lee's his debut Nine Fox Gambit was great. Uh, which is yeah. really, really smart and one of a bunch of books which, I mean, for at risk of a plug because I am you know, connected to them, that Solaris have been publishing lately, along with the Dave Hutchison's and whatever else. There are a couple of collections. I, I mean, Gary touched on Sharp Ends by Joe Abercrombie, which I think is a wonderful book. Dark, mordant humor, violent, um, funny, engaging. And it, it's one of the few instances out there in the field where you still see, if you like, really old-style core fantasy being represented at short fiction lengths. It's very rare these days, very rare to be done well, and he's one of the few people doing it, which may be why he always ends up showing up in my year's bests. Uh, for exactly that reason. Uh, I also really liked uh, Jeff Ford's collection, Natural History of How. Um, I agree completely with um, the recommendation for the Alexander Weinstein collection, uh, Children of the New World, which is brilliant, as was uh, Michael Weehunt's book, uh, Greener Pastures, which is also heavily, uh, re you know, highly recommended. You know, there was a batch of interesting short story collections out there that are worth looking at. Probably, you know, the one other one I'd mentioned would be the Ken Liu, which uh, Gary mentioned that, you know, um, Paper Menagerie. Uh, as an anthologist, there aren't any I'd mention. I don't think it's a particularly good year for anthologies, so, you know, we'll let that sort of fade into the background. But, you know, there's a lot to read, and I've been, you know, felt like we've been luck Oh, I know, the last book I'd mention would be, um, Carlos Hernandez's debut collection, The Assimilated Cuban's Guide to Quantum Centuria, which has some really interesting stuff. Really quirky, mm -hmm. well written, smart stuff, so, highly recommended. Now, Gary. Quick throw for a summary. Do you have anything else to add since you started the summarizing? The only thing I'd add, which was not on the top list, which we've gone through already, 
But there's a kind of book that I always admire where I look at the description of it. I think this is not going to work. You can't do this. This book is going to be a failure. And, it, and then it isn't. And the book I'm talking about is Francis Harding's The Lie Tree, uh, which is based on a conceit that you feed a tree lies and it tells you a truth. And I thought, okay, this is so schematic. It's diagrammatic. It turns out to be a wonderful novel. It begins with Victorian science. It deals with the situation of young girls in the context of Victorian science. It deals with being discredited. It deals with evolutionary theory. Uh, it, and, and somehow uh, that, that tree is actually in the novel. And somehow she makes it work. And I, when, when, I'm, when I'm confronted with an author who is doing something which is patently absurd, and then getting away with it and convincing me of me, uh, convince me that it works. I'm impressed. Well, if you're going to bring a 2015 book into the list for a second, there is one last thing. I'd, yeah, it's a 2015 book. The one last thing I touch on very quickly, and it was something that I read in 2016 that would came out on the cusp of 2015 and was part of our roundtable podcast. And if it had been a 2016 book, would have been at the very, very top of my list, and that would have been the thing itself by Adam Roberts. Here, here, I agree 100%. So, yeah, I, I, I left it off my list because it was one of last year's books, but I would have put it on other ways. Look, I, I read another book next to The Lie Tree, Gary, um, which is another, yeah. which is on the edge of genre, which is Sarah Perry's The Essex Serpent, which does many of, is about many of the same things that The Lie Tree is about, this kind of collision between science and religion. Um, mm-hmm. In kind of Victorian England, it's about naturalism in that period. It's about a number of things like that, and about, there's a lot of resonances between the two books. And it's an enormously energetic and entertaining novel. Um, she she published a first novel a couple of years ago called After Me Comes the Flood. I think I'm, I might have the title slightly wrong, which was, again, a kind of strange genre-inflected sort of ghost story thing um, without ghosts. Um but, you know, had that kind of air of kind of menace and that, that kind of summer garden kind of thing happening. But this, the Essex Serpent sits very comfortably, I think, next to next to the lie tree and is also a, a terrific and very entertaining book. Look it up. Sounds wonderful. Mm. Well, and I've got one final yeah. note. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Just one more. It was a bad he, year, he, but one this... more. Yeah, no, well, this is where we're really pulling at, uh, at the strings uh, at straws. The, uh, I'm only, cause I'm only a third of the way through it, but The Obel Escape by N.K. Jemison is great so far. So. <laughs> I expect it to be a Hugo ballot next year. Yes, and I, and I will, I know, I know, I remember when you've posted about it, uh, Jonathan, but I will read Ken Liu's uh, sequel to the, the, yeah. well, I, I, the, um, to his fantasy series, which Wall is long. It is, Wall yes, Wall it's, it's about 900 pages, but that's going to be my, Summer, well, yeah, January reading. It's going to be my blockbuster for January. So <laughs> it's already lined up. Wow. That brings us to the end of 2016. We'll set the round table to one side. This will go out shortly. I'd like to take the chance, the time to sort of thank you, James, and thank you, Ian, for making the time to join us for this podcast and for the round tables. Pleasure. Thank you. It was great. And to wish you both wonderful holiday seasons for those who celebrate Christmas or uh, Hanukkah or whatever else. I hope it's a wonderful season for you. Thank you. And I hope that we'll get to see you again uh, in, you know, in the in the new year when 2017 books are sort of <sighs> piling up, like just just in enormous piles everywhere. There's a uh, there's does Gary already have Lincoln in the Bardo? 
Not yet. Oh, I want that. No. Book. No. Yeah, I want that book. You don't want it? I do. I want it very badly. Oh, you do want it? Oh, yeah. yeah so do I. I'm, I just thought Gary, you know, through his through his means, might have his fingers on it already. <laughs> but Gary's already read the Kim Stanley Robinson, which is the thing I, I'm desperately looking forward to linking the Bilardo. I've only read the first few chapters of it, but it's... It's not disappointing. I mean, I've, <laughs> no, 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 stop. That's 2017. And so right, this, right, this is you're, how this group correct. of readers deals with the year. We're already straining, you're champing at the bit to get on to 2017. But for now, we're going to lay 2016 to, to rest and come back to you next year. Until then, thank you, James. Thank you, Jonathan. Thank you, Ian. Thank you, Jonathan and Gary. And Gary, I will talk to you next week and the round table will resume next year and we'll see where we are there. It sounds like a good plan. Until then, farewell. <laughs>